Wow, you guys were into that one. Guys, how you doing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're ready to go. All right, well, hey, if you're down, we are going to look at those interactions from the skit and where they happened actually in the Bible. But before we do that, I need to tell you a story. When I was in high school, I had an incredibly illustrious job. I worked in the food court in the mall at a famous place you may know called Dairy Queen. Okay? Yeah, that's right, guys. I was one of those blizzard masters pumping out the tasty treats. You know, the world-famous milkshake where you, like, put it out and you turn it upside down, but nothing comes out. Guys, that was me. I was a smoothie blizzard master, okay? And one day I'm at work, and I'm there, and I'm cutting up. I'm, I'm prepping all the fruit for the day for all the countless smoothies we're going to make, and I'm cutting the bananas, and I'm cutting up all this stuff, and all of a sudden my knife tss, cuts my finger, it's, it's, a, it's a bleeder. Like, I'm looking at it trying to figure out, is this like a go to the hospital cut? Is this? And I put pressure on it, and there's a lot of blood, but ultimately, it stops. So I put a Band-Aid on it, and it was like I had to do like a bigger Band-Aid, you know what I'm saying? But eventually, I just get on with my day, and a customer comes, and she orders what I would say is arguably our best thing that we offer, an extra large strawberry banana smoothie. Mm! Yeah, mm, so good. And so... The pro smoothie barista that I am, guys, I take all the ingredients, I put them inside the blender, I'm blending it, and I'm smiling at her, trying to give her good customer service, you know, and I take this blender and the top off, and I pour her stuff into the cup, put the lid on, I hand it to her, she pays, and she takes a big sip and goes, ah. And it was at that moment that I realized something's missing. My Band-Aid's gone. I also realized a Band-Aid is the exact same color as a strawberry smoothie. Guys, my scabby, bloody Band-Aid had been blended irrecognizably into the smoothie. She is now walking away, happy customer, drinking my Band-Aid. And I did what any self-respecting high schooler with a job would have done, and I slunk into the back and hid in the back room. You know what I'm saying? Guys, did you hear how you were immediately repulsed when you realized what happened? The reason I tell you that story is because that's exactly our relationship with God. God is a smoothie. You and I are the Band-Aid. We have no business ever interacting with him. Should a Band-Aid ever come anywhere near a smoothie? No. No, never. It doesn't matter. That's not the smoothie being mean. That's just the nature of how it is, guys. And if you remember what we were talking about this morning, we were talking about our sin. The fact that it's, it's kind of terrifying, that it grows, that it overrides us, that it's more powerful than us, and that we have no chance of ever conquering it, which leaves us in this perpetual cycle of failure, just defeated and beaten down and sad. But what I'm telling you now is that sin is actually much Worse than that. It's not just that it leaves you sad and defeated. We read these verses quickly at the, end, at the end of our time today. We said, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of, glory, of the glory of God. Guys, our sin separates us from God. Just like a Band-Aid has no business being with a smoothie. We are irreconcilably disqualified from ever interacting with the good God that we have been learning about all week. And think about this, you guys. If God is life, if he is love, if he is grace, if in some of these verses we've been talking about all week, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights above. If all those things are tied into his nature and we're separated from him, then what's left for us? Nothing 
pain, terror, bleakness, darkness. Our sin dooms us to separation from God, which is hell. And if sin is more powerful than us, then that means that there is nothing that you and I can do about it. We're stuck, and that's it. That good God is off limits to you and I. And what we're going to spend our time looking at today is Jesus' response to the terrible problem of our sin. As hopeless people who can do nothing about it. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 10. And when you get there, you know what to do. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Now guys, I have to tell you what we're going to do today is called a flyby. Or you could, you could refer to what we're going to do today as like a buffet, okay? We're going to look at some of these chapters and we're just going to sample the most important pieces of them as we make our way through Jesus' response to our sin. So, this first one is my favorite analogy that Jesus tells. It's clear, it's simple, it makes perfect sense. And we saw it in the skit today. This is John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus is going to describe himself as a good shepherd. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he's going to talk about wolves in this analogy. He's going to say, the sheep know my voice and I know them. He has this intimate, caring relationship where he's, he's protecting and he's taking care of each of his sheep. He knows each one. In fact, back then when Jesus was talking, the way that shepherds would care for their sheep at night is they, they would kind of have them sleep in like an alcove or a cutaway in a hill or a cave, right? And so the sheep would all be in there sleeping, and the shepherd himself would sit in the entrance to the cave so that a predator like a wolf would literally have to step over the shepherd's good body, not good body, the shepherd's dead body, to get to the sheep. And guys, I don't know if you realize this, but uh, sheep are dumb. Do you realize this? Yes. And don't let this be offensive. Let this be something that we actually relate to, okay? As a sheep... They, they get lost. They stray, right? A sheep with all that wool, maybe it gets stuck in a prickly bush and it's just like, meh. And what Jesus is saying is he's the good shepherd. He doesn't respond by going, oh, come on, I got to deal with another problem. Like he's not out there punting sheep, you know what I mean? He's the good shepherd willing to lay down his life for them. And the analogy applies to us because it means if it's not a wolf or an animal high on the food chain that threatens us, it's our sin and Jesus says, as the good shepherd, if that's what's threatening you, I will lay down my life to protect you from that. And that's John chapter 10. You ready to move on to the next little piece of our buffet? Yeah. Everybody say, yes! yes. Ooh, all right, here we go. John chapter 11. Let's go. Yay! In John chapter... Oh, my. In John chapter 11, we see not the teaching of Jesus, we see now a miracle of Jesus. And this one's going to be special because it happens within Jesus' own friend group. I don't know if you've thought about that. Jesus had the 12 disciples. He had friends, right? He was fully human in the way that he interacted and enjoyed his relationships. And there, was, there were three siblings in this friend group. And one of them, the brother, gets horribly sick. His name is Lazarus. And he dies. And Jesus is, is away from the friend group at the time, and so they're grieving, they're, they're weeping, they're just absolutely heartbroken, and Jesus can't get back to them until four days after, we read, after Lazarus dies. And so this friend group has just been devastated for days. And we see when Jesus gets there, in verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her, Mary, this is Lazarus' sister, when Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This is that famous verse where it says Jesus wept. Right? Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And later when he goes to the tomb and just the finality and the significance of his friend is dead in that grave, it says once again, Jesus was deeply moved. And guys, I think John put this in here for a couple reasons. He wants to remind us that when we say Jesus was fully human, it means he felt every emotion that you and I have felt. He, he was sad that his friend was dead. He wasn't just sad that his friend was dead. He was sad when he showed up and saw all his alive friends crying. That broke his heart. He would have felt all the other emotions, right? Like nervousness, like stress, like anxiousness, like fear, pain, disappointment. All of those things, Jesus was fully human. And, and we, we know how this story ends because it's famous, but Jesus goes to the tomb and he goes, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus goes, Whoa, what's up, Jesus? And he's just, he's just back, you know? Which is significant because in this little glimpse into Jesus' life, we see his full humanity on display and his full Godhead on display. He has full power over life and death. And then John moves us on. How are we doing so far in our little buffet? You guys doing okay? Is this weird? Is this good? All right, well, let's keep going then. Um, there's, a, there's a weird little quirky thing in John chapter 12, and I'm a dork for telling you this, but I just I think it's hilarious, okay? So when Jesus raises his friend Lazarus back from the grave, it's another one of those buzz moments. People start talking. They're like, oh, my goodness. He raised another guy from the dead. That's crazy. And it, so much so that there are certain Jews who begin to follow Jesus, instead of doing the stuff that the religious leaders wanted them to do, right? And in chapter 10, we read that the chief priests get so mad about this, they're like, huh, it's Jesus again, that they made plans <laughs> to kill Lazarus as well. Now they're not just after Jesus, now they're after Lazarus. Like, imagine if you're Lazarus and you're like, I'm alive, I'm doing great, oh no, I'm sick, but I'm dead. And then Jesus, Jesus brings you back to life and you're like, I'm alive again. And then you find out that people are trying to kill you and you're like, not again. You know, but, and I don't think they got him, but do you realize this? Even if he made it to old age, Lazarus died twice. That's crazy to me. I don't know. You guys are like, we're from Christian schools. We already know that. Okay, whatever, all right? The most significant thing in chapter 12 is this little phrase that Jesus uses. In John chapter 12, verse uh, 23, he says, the hour has come. And he's been sprinkling this other phrase, all throughout the book of John, we just haven't had time to read it, where he has said, the hour has not come. The hour has not come. In all these moments where the religious leaders have tried to capture him, to arrest him, to trap him, to stone him, right? We're told over and over again that he has eluded them. Well, he wasn't able to elude them because he was like slippery or a fast runner, you know? He's eluded them because Jesus is here in his power, in his decision voluntarily saying, no. I know the work that I have to do to save the world, and it's not time yet. I don't think you will capture me right now. But now, he flips the switch, and he says, the time has come. And now he will allow this procession of persecution to happen to him. He's not being had. He's not being overcome. Remember, right, we said, well, I showed you that picture, and we said, Jesus isn't this weak, meek guy that got ganged up on. Jesus is fully in control, calling all the shots the whole time. And I, I get tingly just with this verse in John chapter 10, verse 18, where he says it himself. He says, no one takes my life from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it back up again. He goes, now, now I'm going to do what I came to do, and the world will be free of what oppresses them. And that brings us to John chapter 13. If you're ready, say, oh, Oh, guys, this is great. Okay. In John chapter 13, we come across that famous story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And you might be like, I've heard this a million times, but I just want you to think about a couple things, okay? To me, the reason this story is so significant is actually because of the timing. Jesus knows that he doesn't have very much time left with his disciples. And as he processes, what are the most important things that I want to tell them in the moments before I leave them, the symbolism of washing their feet makes the top of his list. He goes, this is one of the primary things I want them to understand. And so he gets down and he takes this role of a servant that no one else was willing to do, this dirty job that people of low status did, that other people who didn't do it judged them, right? And he washes each of the disciples' feet one by one, clearly communicating to them, listen, guys, if you want to be great as a follower of Jesus, that's not a bad thing. I'll show you how. But you know what? It's going to be opposite the way the world does it. When the world says the way that you make yourself great is you prove yourself better than everybody else. You try to compete and one-up each other. Jesus says, no, 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 no. In my kingdom, it's the opposite. If you want to be great as a follower of Jesus, you choose humility. You serve people. You treat them better than yourself. You sacrifice on their behalf. That is how you're going to accurately communicate my love that I have for you to the people around you. And it's interesting because as he's asking them to wash each other's feet and serve, he will do that in the ultimate way in hours when he goes to the cross, right? And this next little snapshot that we get in John chapter 14, uh, I love because it's kind of like that. Do you remember the bread story where the people just don't get what Jesus is talking about? For whatever reason, I'm drawn to those. And this is another one of those. This is both funny and profound in my opinion. Here's what it says. We are going to read this one. John chapter 14, verse 1. It says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now you and I know, because we, we know the story, that he's talking about heaven. His disciples are worried because Jesus has told them, I'm not going to be with you for much longer. And they're like, what? And they're bummed. And he goes, no, 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 listen. Heaven is coming. That's where I'm going. You should be excited, not bummed. But they don't get it. And I, I love Thomas's response in verse 5. He says, uh, Lord, we do not know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Right? And then Jesus says this famous quote. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying in this moment, Thomas, you do know the way. I, I have told you, I'm the spring of living water. I'm the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am everything that you need to be okay. The way, the way is here. There's not any knowing that you have to do. You have everything you need in me. And guys, I, I'm going to take a risk with you. I want to do something that usually gets taught at a high school level, but, but if I'm honest, when I think about when I was in junior high, if someone had been able to communicate this to me, it would have really helped in my ability to, to confidently place my trust in Jesus. Can we, can we try it? 
Okay, but you're going to have to go, again, you're going to have to go nerd level for a little bit. Have you ever wondered, like you know this stuff, but have you un- ever wondered why it actually works that a bearded guy 2,000 years ago had to die in order for you to be saved from your sins? Like if we're honest, that sounds a little bit weird, but I want to, I want to give you the logic behind this that this actually makes sense, and it's the only thing that has ever worked to solve our sin problem. See, the solution to our sin problem had to be fully human, fully sinless, and fully God. And before Jesus, that right combination had never happened in all of human history, and it has never happened again since. The solution to our sin had to be fully human, because as it says in Romans 6.23, if the, if the cost, the punishment for our sin was death, then something would have to die to take our place. And we just talked about Jesus being fully human. But that solution also would have had to be fully sinless, right? Think about this. If you're an inmate and you're serving a life sentence, can another inmate serving his life sentence take your life sentence? No, he's serving his own life sentence, right? But if an innocent man, free, walking on the streets, came into the prison, made a deal with the guards and said, I'm innocent, I have no penalty on me, I'll take his place. I will serve his life sentence so that he can go free. Wouldn't that work? Wait, yes it would. What are you talking about? An innocent man would walk in, right? He has no penalty to pay. He's completely innocent. And if the judge allowed him to take the place, he doesn't have his own sentence to serve. He could substitute himself for that inmate so the inmate could go free. That's why it's so important that Jesus is fully sinless, fully human and fully sinless. But think about this. If Jesus was only sinless and human, one person with one life, And he said, I'm willing to die to save people. How many people could he save? Just one, because he's just one guy. But if Jesus is as he's proved and says he is, that he's fully God, God in his nature being infinite, then the number of people that he could offer salvation from their sin to is an infinite number of people. Jesus is the only combination that actually makes sense to solve our sin problem that has ever happened in the entire world. You guys, this is why... You can't try hard enough to save yourself from your sin. You are not this sin combination. This is why Muhammad or Buddha or Joseph Smith or no one else can save you from your sin because Jesus is the only time this combination has ever happened. What's more and maybe most significant is that just because Jesus is that combination doesn't mean he has to die for you. If Jesus was the qualifier and said, but I don't, I don't want to die, you and I would still be stuck in our problem. But the fact that Jesus was the right solution and then looked at you and I and said, and I love them so much that I am willing to lay down my life for them, that is the only reason that we get to look forward to the forgiveness of our sins. And guys, so many people who aren't Christians hear John 14, 6, these words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's the reason they associate with Christianity They're so narrow-minded and intolerant. That's offensive, right? And if we're not careful, we hear that and we go, yeah, wait, there's there's only one way to God. Maybe that is narrow-minded. But but I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine if if I came to you tonight and I said, guys, I got a terrible prognosis from my doctor today. He, He called me and he said, you have like an aggressive advanced cancer. And for the cancer that you have, there is no cure. Like, you have maybe a week, maybe two, TJ. 
And if I got that news today and then a doctor kicked in those back doors, you know, wearing like a white lab coat and he's holding like a test tube and he's like, that's not true. Like six minutes ago, I made the cure. There is a cure to your cancer. It's right here. How crazy would this be if I like looked in the back and I was like, wait, 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 wait. what's up, doc? Uh, is, that, is that one test tube you're holding of like yellowish brown stuff? No, no, no. You know, you can keep that. I... If you don't have multiple options, if there's not a blue and a red and a green that I can choose from, I don't, you, I don't want anything that you've got, sir. How crazy would that be? You would look at me and go, TJ, you, you, you had a death sentence. There's no way you're recovering from this. There was no cure, and now there's a cure? You have to take that. That's not offensive. That's not narrow-minded. There was no way, and now there's a way. Guys, that's what Jesus did for you and I. We were dead in our sin. There was no way. It's not offensive. It's miraculous that there is even one way. Jesus' words are not narrow-minded. They're the greatest extension of grace that has ever been offered to mankind. But don't forget, we are still hippity hopping through our little buffet, okay? And here's the thing we're gonna skip chapter 15 and 16 because we're gonna hit those tomorrow night, all right? But I want you to see something in chapter 17 that I don't know if you know. In the time leading up to what Jesus is gonna do on the cross for us, he prays three times in John chapter 17. He's going to pray for himself because he, he's fully human. He's nervous. He's afraid. He's going to pray for his disciples. And then he's going to pray for you. This means as he knows what's coming in his life, the pain, the difficulty, the, the torture, he has you on his mind. And when I say you, I don't mean you as a group, Hume Lake. I don't mean you, your youth group. I mean you. He knows you. He's your creator. Your face. He's thinking about you and praying for you individually Going, I hope that they would accept the forgiveness that I'm making it possible for them to receive. I hope that they will accept a relationship with me. That's, to me, the most important part of chapter 17. And that brings us now to 18. And in 18, we find that moment where Judas will exchange the life of Jesus, the leader of his 12 that he's been in, for a few coins of silver. And we pick it up in 18.3. It says, so Judas came to the grove. So he brought this horde of bad guys to the place where Jesus is. Jesus came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And when they get there, Peter, somewhere on his person, has a sword. And he pulls it out, shing, and he's like, hiya! And he cuts off one of the bad guy's ears. And it just, I, this is my weird brain, guys. I have always wondered, like, what sound does an ear make when it falls to the ground? You know what I mean? Is it like, I, I don't know. What's crazier is in other accounts, we're told that Jesus picks up the ear, like, hey, sorry about that, buddy. And then he puts it back on. And I'm just telling you, if I was genius, I mean, if I, yeah, if I was a genius, if I was Jesus, I would like put the ear on his forehead, you know, as a reminder, like, don't mess with the Lord, you know. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's very gracious. And we're told that he commanded Peter, Peter, put your sword away, right? Because he has decided in his power and his choice my time has now come. Peter, don't, don't try to protect me. Don't try to stop this. I am going to that cross. 
of my decision. I will go there. I will pay that price. I will save these people. He wasn't taken advantage of. He wasn't beaten. He wasn't ganged up on. He chose this for you and I, right? And ultimately, he ends up arrested. And before, as we've seen in the skit, Brutus, right, or Pilate. And this scene takes place in John chapter 18, verse 37. And as he talks with Pilate, Pilate says, you're a king then. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. And with this he went out again to the Jews. It's amazing that Pilate asked, what is truth? What he's missing is that the most important truth is standing right in front of him, staring at him face to face. The truth that could save his life, his eternity, is right there, and then he walks away from it. And just like we saw in the skit, three times, Pilate will say, I find nothing that he has done wrong to charge him with. Again, proving that Jesus is absolutely sinless, and yet the people will continue to press Pilate, they're relentless, and they want Jesus gone and dead. And so Pilate gives in. And and guys, what we're about to read is a word in chapter 19 that most Christians read and just move on from. We are not going to move on from. And I want to tell you that the things that we're about to talk about um, are pretty intense. And I'm not sharing them with you to make you cry or to emotionally manipulate you. Because I am of the belief that if you are going to accurately live a a life in response to what Jesus did for you, then you need to accurately understand the cost that he paid for you, okay? So we're gonna look at this maybe in a way that you haven't before, and here's what, here's what John chapter 19, verse one says. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Flogging was crazy, you guys. This would have meant that Jesus was taken to this place called the Praetorium. He would have had his clothes stripped off of him and his hands tied to a pole in front of him. And this Roman legionnaire would have been an expert, a master in the art of torture and execution. And in his hand, he had something called the cat of nine tails. And this thing had multiple strips of leather hanging off of it. And it wasn't just a whip because on some of these strips, at the end of them was tied heavy balls of lead. On others were tied jagged shards of bone. And as an expert, he would have taken this with the full force of his strike down across Jesus' shoulders and back with those lead balls hitting first, knocking the wind out of him, probably causing deep tissue bruises that would purple and blue and yellow his back. And then behind those, those jagged shards of bone would have hit and stuck at the top and scratched, peeling ribbons of flesh off of Jesus' back as he bled profusely, probably crying out in agony. 39 times the man would do this to Jesus because he knew that he was so consistent in it that if he went one more lash to 40, Jesus would die. And they didn't want that. They wanted Jesus to be beaten within an inch of his life before he even made it to the cross. And this wasn't it. We're told in verse 2 that they put a crown of thorns on him. And when you hear thorns, don't think rosebush thorns like we have here. There the thorns are like an inch, inch and a half long. And they bludgeon them into his head, mocking this idea that he's a king, right? 
and they strike him in the face and they say, prophesy, who hit you? And they spit on him and they say, hail the king of the Jews. And they put a purple robe on him that with the blood from his back, it begins to coagulate into and stick to that robe. And they leave it on just long enough that once it's dried, they rip it off again so that all those wounds on his back are fresh and exposed and bleeding again. And then they make him carry the cross member of his cross through the streets of Jerusalem out of the town to the execution site where criminals were executed. A hill called Golgotha, which meant the place of the skull. And there Roman soldiers would have held him down. And with a wooden mallet and something like a railroad spike, they would have pounded it in between the bones in his wrist. There, purposefully, because this is a pressure point, a bundle of nerves that once pierced would cause searing pain to pulsate through his entire body in both arms, through the tops of his feet, and now he is fixed to the cross in a position purposely by design so that his lungs couldn't expand and he could not breathe. In order to breathe, he would have to pull up on those nails, bearing all his body weight in his wrists so that his lungs could open and he could take a breath. But the agony of the pain wouldn't allow him to stay there, and he would have to slide back down. And if he wanted another breath, he'd have to pull up again with his raw, exposed, wounded back scraping on the coarse, splintery wood of the cross every single time. And Jesus would not have died from blood loss. He did not die from pain. He died from suffocation because he couldn't pull himself up that last time, and he couldn't get a breath. And lots of people were crucified, you guys. I don't tell you a morbid story for the sake of a morbid story. The reason this one is so important is because this one was fully man, fully sinless, fully God. And this one said, and I love you, and I'll die for you. I am the only combination that can save you from your sin. And at the end of his life, he said this phrase. In John 19, verse 30, he said, it is finished. And if you've ever thought as a Christian, it's weird that we'd call this terrible moment the good news. Well, this phrase is where it starts to become good news. This was a banker's term. It meant paid in full. What Jesus was saying is that the cost, the punishment of your sin has been paid. It's cleared. It's gone. For the first time ever, what we have access to is relief and forgiveness. All the weight and shame and guilt on my shoulders that is causing me to drown and die and be separate from God. He did the work. He paid the price for that to be removed from my shoulders and placed onto his. It is finished. Guys, there's two verses that I can't help but read after painting that picture. In Romans 5, 8, it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And John 15, 13 says, man has no greater love than that he lay down his life for his friend. This wasn't just to solve our sin problem. It's as if God looked at us and said, what's the biggest symbol that communicates love to the maximal level in humanity? Oh, it's dying for them? Then I'm going to do that for them. I want them to know the maximum love is what I have for them. You're forgiven. You're loved. Like, I can't say enough, right? And the amazing thing is, we could still look at his death and just go, how sad and how terrible but I would be remiss for not showing you what Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 says. Because even in his death, everyone understood this is God. 27, 51 
It says, at the moment of Jesus' death, the, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely this was the son of God. And guys, this story is amazing because Jesus didn't just die. It wasn't just evident that he was powerful. Three days later, he what? He rose from the grave. He proved that he had victory over death, right? That, that verse that's like, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He treated death like a weak enemy and punched it in the face. More significantly to you and I, he proved that he could bring dead things back to life. And if you and I were spiritually dead in our sin, he proved I am the way, the truth, and the life. I can save you, and I can forgive you. And guys, some of you are here tonight, and you are drowning in your sin. You have never accepted the forgiveness of Jesus, and I want to give you the opportunity to do that tonight. But you need to realize that, remember we said we don't just take Jesus' stuff. If we accept his forgiveness, what he offers us is so much more than that. Remember, he called himself a king in this passage. He says, I offer you forgiveness, and I offer you me as the Lord of your life in relationship. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will grow you. I will love you. We don't just accept his forgiveness. We surrender ourselves entirely and say, Jesus, I'm done being the leader of my own life. I hate the direction I have taken myself. I surrender myself to you. I accept your forgiveness, and I accept your kingship and your lordship. And guys, if that's you and you want to accept that forgiveness for the first time tonight, in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to stand. And that might sound scary, but this is, I invite you to do this for an important reason, okay? Because if you can't stand for what God is doing in your heart tonight in a room full of Christians who will celebrate you and be excited for you, then you may not be ready to stand as a Christian in the world when you go back home. But that's okay. Because there are some of you in here that are like, no. I want that relationship with Jesus, and I need that forgiveness. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to stand in one, two, three. That's awesome, guys. You can go ahead and sit down. Hey, the Bible says in Luke 10... That that moment for you, if you accepted Jesus' forgiveness for the first time tonight, that angels in heaven rejoice now, not in general, now, in this moment, they rejoice with you because you just went from death to life. And guys, there are others of you in here who, you, you've known about Jesus. You've already accepted his forgiveness. But maybe you reached a point tonight or some point this week where you realized, I have taken what Jesus did on the cross for granted. I haven't been living in response to him, in relationship with him. I've been living as the king of my own life, sinning whenever I want, doing whatever. Like, there's not much in my life that even would be proof that I am a Christian. And for you, maybe you're at a point tonight where you go, I feel like Jesus is saying, come back. Your invitation is repent. Just turn around. Just live your life in relationship with Jesus the way that you've already been invited to. And guys, whether you're that first group who for the first time tonight you accepted his forgiveness, 
Or you're that second group where it's like, yeah, Christianity has just been white noise, nothing to me, but I want to live my relationship with God again. Here's, here's what I'm going to invite you to do tonight. I'm going to invite you to stay here and just talk with somebody. Guys, God didn't design us to do life alone in isolation. He gave us each other as a gift. And you have human staff here. You have counselors here who would be so honored to just sit with you and hear, tell me what God's doing in your heart. What do you, can I pray with you, right? And if that applies to you, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to stay. The rest of you are here and you're like, this is so awesome, but I don't know that it applies to me. After I pray, I'm going to ask you in a discipline of silence to just walk out quietly. And guys, if you're leaving and you, res you respect what God is doing in the hearts of people in this room, please, please, please don't distract them. Just leave quietly, okay? Let me pray. God, we love you. And we thank you that you love us so much that you rescue us from ourselves, that you went to such extensive lengths just to give us yourself. And God, I pray for every single one of these students that you would get glory as they follow you, as they obey you. God, would you, would you give them clarity of conscience to understand, to see the difference between right and wrong? Would you bless them as they choose to live a life that follows you? God, would you strengthen them? Would you give them a good support network that can encourage them and love them? Would you give them a fascination and love for your Bible? God, we love you, and we give you tonight. In Christ's name we pray, amen.